The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Last week, when we were together on Resurrection Sunday, we finished up Luke chapter 17 as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we looked at how in that last section of Luke 17, uh, Jesus was unfolding sort of how the kingdom of God has come and where it's going. And we saw some wonderful truths there that the kingdom of God arrived when the king arrived, when Christ was born. And we saw by looking at the crucifixion and the resurrection, the inauguration of his kingdom uh, and the beginning of the, the age of the church. And then we sort of concluded our time last week looking forward to the end when the kingdom of God is going to be consummated at the return of Christ. And really the bulk of this, the last section of Luke 17 dealt with the consummation of the kingdom and the return of Christ. Now, we didn't have anywhere near adequate time to spend on the consummation of the kingdom and the return of Christ. And so we sort of just dipped our toes into the water, if you will, on that issue. And so I thought this morning what we would do as a follow-up to that is sort of pull out of our study of Luke before moving on to chapter 18 and to look at the consummation of the kingdom, to look at sort of what, the, what are the, the issues involved at the return of Christ. So the goal this morning is really to uh, to jump in our in our uh, airplane and fly up to about thirty thousand feet and and do an overview of the end times. The goal this morning is not to solve every mystery related to end times prophecy or end times events. <clears throat> in fact, we couldn't do that if we had multiple months to study these things. Uh, my goal in doing this this morning is sort of to frame the theology for you and to sort of give you a skeleton on which you can go back to God's Word and study on your own and flesh out sort of the details and your own convictions about these matters. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to kind of sort of look at the end times and the consummation of the kingdom. I'm going to lay out for you uh, what issues related to that are debatable issues, uh, issues upon which the, the broader evangelical Christian community has great debate and great conversation, and there's been much writing on, things that you'll need to sort out for yourself. And then we'll sort of move into talking about what things are crystal clear about the end times, what things we can say for certain, for sure, that we know that the Bible makes absolutely clear beyond a shadow of a doubt, and then we'll sort of wrap up, um, depending on how quickly you listen and how much time we have left, um, with just sort of looking at what the Bible lays out in Matthew 24 in Jesus' Olivet Discourse on what are the general signs or some general sort of things we should expect to be happening as we get closer to the end. And so that's sort of our, our goal for this morning uh, there. Uh, there's always been great interest in the end times. In fact, throughout the years of my preaching ministry, I, when I come to the end of preaching through a book, I'll sometimes begin to ask folks in the church, hey, what, what, what book do you think we should move to next? What, what book uh, would be interesting uh, in your mind for us to study in our next uh, journey? And I almost always preface that question when I ask people by saying, which book would you be interested in? except the book of Revelation. If you've ever asked that question, if you've ever heard me have that conversation, you've always, I always add that caveat because I know if I just give a blanket question like that, eight out of ten times somebody's going to say, Revelation. And uh, just to settle that issue for you once and for all, I'm saving Revelation to my last series before I retire, whenever that's going to be, if I don't die sometime before I can plan that. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, uh, in, in the world of theology, things that I'm particularly interested in and intrigued by, for whatever reason, the way I'm wired, eschatology, end-time theology, is not something that piques my interest all that much. I'm weird in that way, I suppose. But part of it is because so much of it is speculative. So much of it is, is, is very challenging to put together in a way that we can stand on with 
a firmness and a dogmatism. And uh, I really am drawn to the things uh, that I can stand on with two feet firmly. And there's enough landscape in the Bible that I haven't talked about in relation to that, that I'm going to exhaust that first and come back to the other things later. However, it is important for us to look at these things, and it is important for us to talk about them and to sort of think through what's involved as we read our Bibles and study on our own and try to sort of flesh out our own personal convictions and theology in relation to the end times. So I want to do the pastoral work of equipping you to do that well, even if I'm not solving all those things for you. And it's also important because there's great interest in the end times, not just among evangelical Christians, but around the world in general. Even people who have no particular uh, concern for the things of God or the things of Christ, there's great uh, interest and intrigue related to the end of time and to apocalyptic kinds of things. Uh, there was an article just a few months ago uh, in the New York Times um, uh, and the title was this, the 2023 Doomsday Clock. This is how close we are to the apocalypse. I don't know if you know this, but there's an actual clock that I can show you a little picture of that's called the Doomsday Clock. It is, it is reset at various times in our history, uh, and it's reset by atomic scientists. And it is meant to uh, metaphorically convey how close... Uh, atomic scientists think we are to the end of the world, to the apocalypse. Now, it probably eluded your interest or your or your view back in January that the atomic scientists uh, moved the hands on the doomsday clock to 90 seconds before midnight. So the furthest we've been away in the last, I don't know, 30 or 40 years is about 12 minutes to midnight. We're now been adjusted in January from 100 seconds down to 90 seconds. What does all that mean? Well, it means absolutely nothing other than that atomic scientists are trying to tell you that they think that we're closer to the apocalypse than we've ever been. In their bulletin that they released on this issue, here's what they said, and this is what's reflected in the article. The bulletin of the atomic scientists moved the metaphorical clock up 10 seconds from where it had stayed for the past two years, citing the escalation in Russia's invasion of Ukraine back in February of 2022. Quote, Russia's thinly veiled threats to use nuclear weapons remind the world that escalation of conflict by accident, intention, or calculation is a terrible risk. The possibilities that the conflict can spin out of anyone's control remains high. The war's effects also undermine global efforts to combine climate change as countries depend on Russian oil and gas and have expanded investment in natural gas. The clock itself, they tell us, is a metaphor. It's a reminder of the perils we must address if we are to survive on the planet. So even atomic scientists have some concern for the apocalypse and apparently have more grave concerns now than ever that we're close to the end. Another New York Times article just a couple of years ago entitled The Apocalypse as an Unveiling was exploring various religious perspectives on the end of time and the apocalypse. And uh, out of that article, I, this quote came, in the United States, where Christianity is by far the dominant religion, about 40% of American adults believe that Jesus is definitely or probably going to return to earth by the year 2050. All right, so let me break that down. So by the year 2050, about 40% of Americans, religious or not, believe that Jesus is either definitely or probably going to come back by the year 2050. What was fascinating about this survey was that that included one in five religiously unaffiliated people. So even people who have no religious affiliation have some sense that there is potential, at least probably or definitely, that Christ will return. The article also talked about various world religions and their perspective on the end times. It noted that in Buddhism, time is cyclical, it's not linear, making the apocalypse both an end and a beginning. 
So life is in this endless cycle of beginnings and ends, and worlds begin, and worlds end in apocalypse, and a new one begins, and so there's this endless cycle of time, and we find ourselves in the midst of this infinite cycle of beginnings and endings, perhaps close to another ending. It's not just religion, though, even sort of secular a culture around us has tremendous interest and a real sense at least that there's an exploration of what's going to happen at the end, that something is going to happen that's going to bring an end to the world as we know it. You see that in the kinds of movies and television shows that are being produced. Uh, there is an endless sort of array of those that uh, portray to us the apocalypse, the end of the world uh, via zombie apocalypse. Uh, should you watch The Walking Dead or the Zombieland series, or any of a number of others. If it's not zombies, it's going to be a deadly virus that overtakes people and makes our minds go nuts and explode, like in the Maze Runner movie series, or the television series of late, The Last of Us. If it's not a deadly virus, and if it's not a zombie apocalypse, according to movies like Independence Day, Signs, or more recently, A Quiet Place 1 and 2, Some sort of alien invasion is going to take place to bring about the apocalypse. If none of those are your source of entertainment and you're more of a Disney Pixar kind of person, then you're probably familiar with the movie WALL-E. WALL-E tells us that rampant consumerism and corporate greed and environmental neglect are going to turn the earth into a garbage-strewn wasteland that's only going to leave robots to clean up the mess after we've evacuated to another planet. Well, I can say with a high degree of certainty that none of those things are true. I don't think you need to live in fear of a zombie apocalypse, although it wouldn't be a bad idea to have an axe in the garage just in case. I I don't think a deadly virus is going to wipe us all out, nor do I think aliens are going to invade or consumerism cause us to turn the planet into a waste-strewn wasteland. The Bible has a different picture of what's going to happen in the end. Christ has not left us with a bunch of questions that are unanswered. There are questions that are unanswered, but there are some things that are absolutely certain that the Bible tells us about what is going to happen at the end. Now, the reason that this is a controversial subject, the reason that there have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands perhaps of volumes written on end times theology is because it is one of the more difficult things to sort of piece together in a cogent picture that's nice and tidy and makes sense from the biblical data. That's because much of the literature in the Bible that relates to the end times is prophetic in nature in the Old Testament and in the New. So much of it is is wrapped up in imagery that we have to make some interpretive decisions about what things are meant to be understood very literally in the images and in the numbers and in the times and what things are simply meant to be metaphors or symbols that relate to something else. And, and then beyond that, when we identify things that are metaphorical or symbolic, what exactly are they metaphors of? Or what particularly are they symbolic of? These are not easy things to discern. There is no one nice, neat, tidy place in the Bible you can go to that answers all these questions and parses all of that out for you. It requires work and deduction and interpretive Uh, discipline to come to those conclusions on your own. Um, And I think beyond that, you have to imagine, for instance, the book of Revelation uh, itself, written by by the, the apostle John. John, in somewhere around the first, or maybe even, yeah, somewhere late first century, is given a vision by God of the apocalypse at the end. And John is seeing things that he has no language to describe, things that are well beyond anything of his own experience in his own day, in his own culture, that far exceed any language that he knows to be able to describe. So we have a first century man looking at things at the end of time that are so foreign to him and trying to use the language of his day to describe what he's seeing. Uh, So you can only imagine the challenges of that from an author's perspective. Could you just imagine somebody in the 1800s in America uh, getting a glimpse of an F-35 fighter jet or a nuclear explosion and then trying to use the language in English in the 1800s to describe what he or she was seeing? 
There are no words. What do you do? How do you describe something that is inconceivable to your own language? And so these are the challenges that we face when we're trying to put the data together and put together a cogent picture of what's going to happen in the end. And that's why that there are many godly, faithful believers who disagree about various points in relation to how the end times are going to play out. So in light of those things, there are a number of issues that are matters of great debate. I just want to sort of list those out, make you familiar with them if you're not already, um, so that you can at least know what the issues are. So what are some of the main debatable issues related to the end times? Well, the first is the nature of the millennium. We find in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 and verse 7, the following John writes, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those uh, whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands, or their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And when the thousand years ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Subsequent to that, Satan is judged and the world is destroyed and a new heavens and a new earth are created according to the rest of the book of Revelation. So we're introduced to this idea of a millennial reign of Christ, a 1,000 year period of time on which Christ reigns. So there's great debate about this. And the debate centers around how do we understand that 1,000 years that's mentioned here in Revelation 20. Are we meant to understand that as a literal 1,000 years uh, of time as we know years where Christ will physically return and rule on earth for that length of time after which subsequently chronologically the other things will then begin to unfold. Those who hold to a premillennial sort of end times theology or even a postmillennial uh, end times theology would argue yes that the thousand years is meant to be understood literally that what we should expect to happen is Christ to return and to establish his rule on earth for a thousand years chronologically and after that the end begins to unfold in rapid order there are others uh, within the evangelical broader evangelical world maybe some of you here who've gathered in this room who who see that thousand years as symbolic and not literal they would say that the thousand years mentioned here is not meant to be understood as a literal thousand years uh, it, it may be like me seeing jack white this morning and saying jack i haven't seen you in a hundred years well, nobody actually would think that I meant 100 years because Jack isn't even quite 100 years yet old. So, just close. You look great for 89, though. Um, you would just understand that to mean, Jack would understand that to mean, I just haven't seen you in a long time. Uh, so some would look to this thousand years and they would say that this is just meant to convey a long period of time, not necessarily a literal 1,000 years. Those would be those who hold to an amillennial sort of perspective on this issue. They would argue that the 1,000 years is symbolic, that the millennium has already begun, and it really encompasses all of the church age. So that's what those terms mean. Probably in this room there are folks who fit all of those categories, and probably most of us in the room fit the, the, the final category in relation to the nature of the millennium. That's the pan-millennial position, and that position just is simply the position that says, I have no idea what any of this means. I just believe it's all going to pan out somehow at the end. But at least that's one issue that's very debatable within the broader Christian world. What is the nature of the millennium? Should we be looking for a literal 1,000 years? Or is this a symbolic lengthy period of time that perhaps we're already in the midst of? Beyond that, another debatable issue is this issue of the tribulation or the great tribulation. Uh, the book of Revelation and some of Paul's writings speak to us about a time near the return of Christ where the world goes through tremendous, unique sort of upheaval where evil is unleashed in a particularly violent sort of way and destructive sort of way. Um, that is, is a, a period of time that, that just immediately precedes the, the, turn, the return of Christ, the second coming, where evil is, is just unleashed in a very devastating and profound way on earth. Um, most people, apart from those who hold to an amillennial view of the millennium, would argue that this is a seven-year period of time right before the return of Christ. The culmination of that time, it, it culminates with the very return of Christ himself. 
Uh, Amillennialists, again, see these numbers as symbolic and would not be looking for a particular seven-year period of time. So again, this is an issue of great debate. What do we look for in the world as we get closer to the return of Christ? Many would say we're looking for a period of seven years next of great tribulation. And then further, the issue that gets debated among that is what happens to the church when that period of seven years comes, if we think there is a seven-year period. What happens to the church? Does the church remain during that period where the world goes through upheaval? There are those who would argue that the scriptures teach a rapture of the church, the idea that Christ before his final second coming, will return in the air, and the church that is present at the time will immediately exit the earth and go to meet him in the air and be extracted from the earth to be with the Lord during that seven-year period of tribulation. So not only is evil unleashed in a particularly profound and devastating way, but the restraint of the godliness and the holiness of the Christian church is removed from the world at the same time. So not only is evil unleashed in a particularly profound way, but the Lord's largest restraint on evil is removed at the same time. And so it's devastating in the consequences that come over those seven years. So there are those who would argue that this is what we should be looking for next on the prophetic timeline. In a moment of time, in an unexpected way, the church, all who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, will immediately, suddenly be removed from the planet to be with the Lord, and that tribulation period begins. Within that, there are subcategories of those who argue that it doesn't work that way, the tribulation starts, and right in the middle of it, after three and a half years, the church gets raptured. And then there are others who say, no, the church doesn't get raptured at all. The church remains for that period of tribulation time. The church will endure the tribulation with the rest of the world. They would argue things like, hey, God hasn't made a habit of removing his people when the world has gone through upheaval. They've largely suffered with the rest of the world and the history of the world. So they would argue we don't necessarily need to expect that at the end that that will happen. Again, these are debatable matters when it comes to the end times. As you talk to people about this, you'll see godly people who are faithful to the Bible, who have sometimes very strong opinions about these matters and have settled in their hearts and will love to argue with you until you are blue in the face about these things. Um, a final issue that's very debatable is what is the relationship between the church and Israel? Because this relates very significantly to how we understand things to develop at the end of time. Really, two sort of broad categories in this conversation. There are those who say and believe that the church, the New Testament church, has now replaced Israel sort of in God's plan of redemption for the world. That is to say, they would argue that all of the Old Testament prophecies about the end times that, are, that God made originally to Israel that have yet to be fulfilled are going to be fulfilled in the church and not to national Israel as a nation. Are you tracking with me on that? They would say that there are things that God says are going to happen all the way back in Old Testament prophecy are going to happen at the end of time that have not happened yet. But those promises we shouldn't expect to happen to national Israel even though they were made to national Israel but the church has replaced Israel now. God is no longer dealing with the Israelites. He is now dealing with the New Testament church, and everything that unfolds at the end is going to be fulfilled in the church, and only to Israel to the degree that Jews believe the gospel and are converted to Christ and become a part of the church. There are others who would say, no, that's not how it's going to go. God made promises to the nation of Israel, to the, to the nation as a nation, and the only way for God to keep his promises to a nation is to fulfill those promises in the future to that very same nation. They would say it would be akin to me making a promise to Jim and then later saying, I'm going to really fulfill that promise to Roger instead of Jim. It's not exactly being faithful to the promise. And so folks who would, who would fall into that category would say, no, what we're looking for at the end, God is doing unique things with his church. Perhaps he's going to rapture the church out. And then all of those unfulfilled prophecies to Israel are going to be fulfilled in a national sense to Israel in the end, before the final return of Christ. 
So, again, two ways of understanding the biblical data on the nature of the relationship between the church and between Israel, particularly in relation to unfulfilled prophecy made to Israel. Okay? So, again, very debatable matters within the broader evangelical world. You need to be aware of them so that if you're having a conversation with somebody, you can at least know what they're talking about and why they're saying different things. All right. Have you guys got all that stuff already settled? If so, I'm going to stop preaching and you can explain it all to me. But you're nodding your heads in such a way that I don't think you do. So just know that these are debatable matters related to the end times. It's not that they are unimportant. It's not that you shouldn't care about them because they're debatable. You, in fact, should care about them. You should think about them. You should study the biblical data and come to your own conclusions and convictions about them. You should not be obsessed with these things. One of my favorite preachers, actually my favorite preacher to listen to, is a pastor called Alistair Begg. And Alistair Begg, one of his favorite things to say quite frequently in his preaching is, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. And it's his uh, way of saying our focus should be on the plain things in the Bible. We should not be sidetracked and obsessed with things that are debatable. Uh, it's right to think about them. It's right to draw your own conclusions and come to your own convictions. But we must hold those convictions with a level of humility and grace to other believers, knowing that we absolutely could be wrong about these things. And quite likely all will have some pieces of it wrong when it all fleshes out. But we're to become familiar with the relevant text. We're to pray and ask the Spirit of God to help us discern these things. We're to draw biblical conclusions that reflect our convictions and then hold those convictions with grace and humility. That's what I think we do with these matters and what I would encourage you to do. Well, what are the things that are crystal clear? There are some things, though, that are very clear, and these are the plain things that I think ought to be the main things. Let's just get a quick list of these things. Well, there it is, all four of you right there. Our world is coming to an end. That is crystal clear in the Bible. The world in which you and I live is not meant to last forever. It is a temporary world. We see this all over the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31, Paul writes, For this world in its present form is what? It's passing away. It's passing away. Paul makes clear that the world in which we live is passing away. It is slowly winding down to a final conclusion. John writes in 1 John 2, verse 17, the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. John tells us in his book, 1 John, don't fall in love with the world or the things of the world. And his main reason for saying to you and to me, do not fall inordinately in love with the things that are in this world and the things that this world is about is because all of the things in this world and everything that this world is about is temporary, it is passing, and it is going to end one day. It is not eternal. Do not love the world because it's going away. In Revelation 21.1, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It passed away. We're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and following that as the world winds down and we get closer to the end that things are going to get worse here. Paul writes to Timothy, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. As things wind down in this world and we get closer to the end, that is what is going to be taking place. That's what's going to become of people. Now you may look at that list and you may say, man, in my life, in my experience, that's what I see happening. More and more people are becoming those very things that Paul described, and I would be one who agrees with you. But we can at least say with clarity that the world is coming to an end, and as it gets closer to the end, it's not getting better, it's getting worse all around. The world is going to come to an end. 
Not because we're going to ruin it with carbon emissions. Not because aliens or asteroids or zombie apocalypse. Not because we're going to, the world is going to evolve into some sort of disuse. The world is going to come to an end because Christ is going to return and God is going to destroy the world in judgment and make a new heavens and a new earth. That's how it's going to happen. We can say that with certainty. Beyond the fact that the world is going away, Jesus Christ is coming back. There, there are few things in the Bible makes more clear than the fact that Christ is coming back. It is the hope of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that he is going to return. Matthew 24, 30, at that time, Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. In chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus talks about his return five times and he continues into chapter 25 talking about it even more. The angels at the ascensions at the ascension in, in, in Acts chapter 1, said very plainly to the disciples who had gathered men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. Same Jesus, he's coming back. Paul writes about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are alive, or still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus the angels, Paul, just about every other biblical writer, James chapter 5, James writes, Be patient then, brothers. Be patient until the Lord's coming. Be patient until the Lord's coming. The Lord's coming is near, he says in verse 8. First Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, verse 13, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And if that isn't enough for you, the Bible ends in the book of Revelation with a personal reminder from the Lord himself who says this in verse 20 of chapter 22. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The second coming of Christ is one of the most widely taught doctrines in all of the Bible. The world is coming to an end, that's for sure. Christ is going to return, that is for sure. And his return is going to be a visible bodily return. That also is for sure. We saw in Acts chapter 1, right, the, the ascension, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back. How's he going to come back? The same way you've seen him go. How did they see him go? Visibly? and bodily. He was in a body, and he ascended, and they saw it. When he returns, he's going to be in a body, he's going to descend, and it's going to be seen. So we know that when the Jehovah's Witnesses then claim to us, when they knock on your door in the middle of your day, and tell you that, no, that's not how it works out, that Jesus actually already returned, and he already began his reign back on October the 1st of 1914. That he came, but it was, his return wasn't a it just wasn't a visible return. It was a spiritual return. When they tell you he hasn't had a body since the ascension and he came back spiritually and nobody noticed it and nobody saw it and his presence is only here sort of as an invisible presence, you'll say, hogwash. That's not what the Bible teaches. What's wrong with you? The Bible tells us that he's going to return the same way he's in the same way he left, visibly, bodily. Matthew 24, Jesus says, verse 30, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Revelation 1-7 says, every eye will see him. We can say for sure that when Christ returns, it will not be a mystery. We saw that back in Luke 17, didn't we? In his words there, everyone will know. Nobody's going to miss it. It's going to be unmistakable and unavoidable, sort of in a worldwide sort of a way. Everyone will know what is happening when Christ returns whether they believed upon him or not. 
Another thing we can say for sure is that nobody knows the time when any of that's going to happen. Throughout history, there have always been those who have declared with great certainty that they know when Jesus is going to return. And inevitably, every single one of them has been what? Wrong. They've all been wrong. And they all will be wrong. Even in our day, there's no shortage of people who are out there writing and teaching and speaking and making YouTube videos and TikTok videos if you don't have the attention span for YouTube. And they're telling you when Christ is going to return. Because they know for sure they would tell you. They can parse the daily news and they can tell you how every bit of news relates to the end times and the return of Jesus. They can add up numbers and dates and calculate and so on and so forth when Christ is going to come back. But if there's anything that the Bible is crystal clear about in relation to the end of time, it is that nobody knows when it's going to happen. It says this over and over and over again. We do not know. We cannot figure it out. Although God has set a time for this to take place, he has chosen not to reveal the time for this to take place. Jesus said from his own mouth in Matthew 24, 36, no one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. He goes on to say what we saw in Luke 17, just like it was in the days of Noah. It's, that's how it's going to be. Everybody's going to be going about their life, doing their normal life things, going to work, standing in line at Starbucks, picking up the kids from school, doing all the things they normally do. And all of a sudden, it's going to happen. Of course, that doesn't stop people from, from making guesses and giving you dates. Here's one thing you can know. If somebody out there tells you they know when it's going to happen and they give you a date, here's what you can know for sure. It's not going to happen on that day. It's not going to happen on that day. You can know that. So you can say to them, thank you very much for ruling out one day, at least in the future, where this is not going to happen. If I live to that day, I know I'm safe on that day. Nobody knows the time. Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah. Matthew 24, 44, the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 15, verse 2, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. A thief doesn't make an appointment. A thief doesn't tell you when they're going to break in. It just happens. So nobody knows. Another thing that's crystal clear is he's going to return to judge and reward. That when Christ comes back, he's coming back with a purpose and with a reason. His reason is not just a visit. His reason is to judge unrighteousness and to reward his people. That is why he comes. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. In the past, God overlooked ignorance, but now he commands all people everyone, everywhere to repent. For he has set a day on when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead, and he's going to bring Jesus back to judge the world in righteousness. You can read more about that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, and following the great white throne judgment. Listen. For people who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the most terrifying event in the history of their lives will be the day Jesus comes back. Because they will stand accountable to the judge of the universe and they will have no defense. They will have no appeal. They will find only judgment for their sin and eternal hell as a reward. It's a dreaded day it is a day that should strike the world with fear and trembling. Yet because of our foolishness and ignorance, it does not. People have no idea what's coming. Just like in the days of Noah. But he doesn't just come to judge. He comes to reward his saints. Revelation eleven eighteen: the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name both small and great for those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior the return of Christ is the most glorious thing that's coming in the future ever because he comes to reward his people he comes not to judge and not to shame he comes to exalt and to glorify and to reward those who've loved him and who served him.
So that's what we can say for sure. The world is passing away. It's coming to an end. It's going to get worse as we get closer to the end. And at the end, Christ is going to return. He's going to return in a way that is visible and is bodily. And it's going to happen at a time that nobody can pinpoint, when nobody will be expecting it. And when he comes, he comes to, to judge and to reward. Those are things that we can know. Those are things that are not debatable. Now, with the three minutes that we have left, I'm going to just give you a list of some general sort of preliminary signs. You can read about these in Matthew 24, Jesus' lengthiest conversation about the end times and what he has to say about this is all pretty much contained in Matthew 24 and 25. But he lists some general signs that are going to take place as we get closer to his return. And he says there are going to be many false prophets and many people coming around claiming to be the Messiah as we get closer. There have always been people who do this, but as we get closer, there are going to be more and more and more people who are doing this. The world is no stranger to people who have claimed that. It's going to be, though, an epidemic proportion at the end. There's going to become a, an intense hostility toward the people of God that increases toward the end. And people are going to be drawn to these sort of enigmatic, enigmatic figures who exalt themselves as prophets and messiahs. will tell people they can deliver them from their suffering. Not only that, there's going to be an increase of wars and rumors of wars. Well, again, this is very difficult to pinpoint. Uh, back in 2020, no, back in the year 2000, actually, a little over 20 years ago, one author estimated that in the last 300 years, there have been over 300 wars. And there's been dozens and dozens of wars since 2000, the year 2000. The world's always been filled with wars. World wars, cold wars, military actions, border conflicts, terrorist attacks, revolutions, and so forth. Right this very minute, there's war raging in Ukraine. Nearly a day, uh, barely a day goes by where you turn on the news and you have somebody talking about the potential for our nation to go to war with China as a real possibility in the next few years. You have in the Middle East the nation of Iran that is regularly and continually threatening Israel with its destruction, claiming that the moment they get the means, they will do everything in their power to eliminate that nation from the planet. There's always wars and rumors of wars hard to know how to numerically categorize this other than to say, as we get closer to the end, Jesus says there's going to be more of it. There's going to be more of it. The same with famines and earthquakes. There have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of earthquakes, and even right this very minute, we live in a nation that's, that's wealthy. Uh, you know, largely the people who've gathered in this room have never struggled to have a meal and have never gone hungry for any length of time. And we live in relative ignorance to the fact that every day around the world there are people by the hundreds of thousands who die out of famine. They don't have enough food. As we get closer to the end, there's going to be more earthquakes, more famines, more natural disasters and terrible things that take place in the world around us. There's going to be an increased persecution of believers. In chapter 24, verse 9, Jesus said this, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. The hostility toward God and the things of God continues to increase as the world comes to its conclusion. And because the world who hates God cannot strike at God himself, they will strike out at God's people and those who represent him in the world. And the hostility will increase. And there will be believers arrested and murdered Again, right now, in places all around the world, martyrdom is a very real threat to believers and a very real reality. Sudan, North Korea, China, nations in Africa and other parts of the world where being, simply being a Christian, claiming the name of Jesus, can and quite frequently does get you killed. That will increase as we get closer and closer to the end. And then he tells us that there's going to be a large-scale apostasy. As we get closer to the end, he says at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate one another. 
Because of the increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Because of intense persecution, because of the suffering that comes, there are going to be an awful lot of people who had previously identified with the Lord Jesus Christ who are going to fall away in large numbers from the faith, who are going to walk away from the church of Christ and denounce him and denounce their faith and walk away. You say, why will they do that? For many, the cost will be too high. For others, the deception too convincing. For others, the lure of sin too attractive. But for a host of reasons, as we get closer to the end, we should expect large-scale falling away of people who had previously identified with Christ. And then finally, in verse 14 of chapter 24, he says that prior to the return of Christ, the gospel, this gospel of the kingdom, will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The gospel preached to the whole world. If you've been to the Museum of the Bible, uh, uh, then you probably saw one of the displays there in that the, museum in D.C. If you haven't been there, if you're ever in that region, you should go there. It's a fantastic museum. But they have there a, a room that has uh, all of these little uh, Bible, sort of, they're not real Bibles, but they look like Bibles, and they're all strewn across this entire display. And they represent all of the languages of the world that have a translation of the Bible currently available in that language. And they're color-coded, so you can see by color how many languages of the world have the Bible translated, the gospel translated into their language. You'll see how many languages in the world exist that do not have access to a Bible in their language. And it gives you some sense for the numbers of people groups, at least in the world, who don't have a Bible that they can read to read about the gospel and these things, and perhaps don't have a gospel witness. Jesus says very clearly at the end, before the end, the gospel will be preached to the whole world. Does that mean that it will gradually happen to where every language gets the gospel? Or does that mean in some sort of event that's sudden toward the end, the gospel will be preached to the whole world? Or is it some combination of those two things? It could be either or, it could be both. But the gospel will be proclaimed to the world before Christ returns. Have these signs already happened? What do you think? I mean, what do you think? Have these signs already happened? Maybe they have. What we can say for sure is we're closer to it than we've ever been. And tomorrow will be even closer than we are today. But it's not hard, I think, if you look at that list of signs, of general signs to say, well, the world sure seems to be trending in this direction, don't you think? And if you ask me, the speed and the velocity at which we're trending in these areas is increasing incredibly. So what do we do with all this? That's the answer. God hasn't called us to think about these things just because we're intrigued or just because it's fun to be able to sort out theology. He concludes when Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24, he concludes in chapter 25 with two parables both related to his conversation about the end time. And the two parables are meant to convey two applicational messages about the end times to his people. Two things that his people need to do in response to what he's told us about the end. And the first one is to be ready at all times. That is the message of Christ. What do you do with end times theology? You walk away going, however it shakes out, whenever it shakes out, I need to live my life in such a way that I'm ready when it happens, should it happen tomorrow. It says, be watchful, be ready. However this plays out, it's going to play out in a way people don't expect, at a time people don't expect, and that could be tomorrow, it could be next week, it could be next month, it could be five years from now. We have no idea. God's people are to live with a regular, ever-present reality that Christ is going to return. He can return at any time, and I'm to live my life in such a way that should he return today, I would not be ashamed at his coming. And the second applicational piece that he gives us as that we're to be found working when he comes back. How should Christ find us when he returns? He should find us doing the work of his kingdom. He should find us obeying the word of God. He should find us evangelizing the lost. He should find us sending missionaries around the world to take the gospel to people who haven't heard it. He should find us doing the work of the ministry. 
that he's called us to do. Be ready and be working. So what about you? What about your life? Is that how you're living these days? Are you living with a mindfulness that Christ is going to come back and that you need to be ready? That your words and your actions and your affections should reflect the reality that Christ is coming back, that this world is coming to an end, that the things that you treasure and the things that you love and the things that you pursue are the things that are eternal, not the things that are passing away. So that when Christ comes back, he finds you ready and finds you doing the work that he's called you and equipped you and gifted you to do in the world. If not, then this morning, maybe that's the way you re respond to these things. I used to pray, Lord, make me ready. Lord, help me to realign my affections and my activities in my life and the pursuits that I'm after so that the things that I'm pursuing and the things that I'm doing and the things that I'm setting my affections on and the things that I'm thinking about are things that are eternal, not things that are temporal, things that are going to last, not things that are passing away. So that when you come back, you'll find me doing the work you've called me to. And I can look to the sky and say, Lord Jesus, come. I've been waiting. Let's pray together that God would make us the kind of people who are both ready and working. Lord, we think about these things and it piques our interest. It piques our speculation. There are a couple of temptations for us. There is the temptation to become intrigued with the peripheral things and to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to sort out things that you haven't meant for us to sort out with dogmatism and certainty. Help us to keep the main things, the plain things, the plain things, the main things. And then there's the other side of that temptation to just say these things are hard and they're confusing and I don't really understand, so I'm just not going to pay attention at all. Pretend like it isn't real. Lord, protect us from that as well. I pray, Lord, for myself and for my friends who've gathered here that you would help us to find a, a middle ground in all of this, that we would love your word so much that we would want to study it, that we would want to uh, come to, confirm, to firm convictions about these matters, that we would want to understand more fully as we develop in our theological understanding what it's going to be like when you return. So help us, Lord, to learn and to grow by your Spirit, Help us form convictions about these matters. But we pray that also by your spirit, you would not cause us to be divisive with others about it. More than any of that, Lord, make us people who are ready for your coming return so that this church, these families, should you come this afternoon or tomorrow, would be people who are rejoicing and prepared and ready to greet you on your return that you would find us working for your kingdom, doing the very things you've called us to do, things of eternal value, that we wouldn't waste our lives, Lord, with the frivolous things of the world that are passing away, only to be destroyed. We pray by your spirit that would be the reality. If there's somebody here, Lord, in the room who has never confessed you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, they've never repented of their sin and entrusted their lives to you, trusting that your death on the cross paid the penalty for their sin, that they might have eternal life by faith in you. I pray that you would strike fear and terror into their hearts at your coming return and that you would draw them to yourself to be saved today. For you are their only hope when that day comes or any day in between. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.